0: Welcome to Getting to the Truth in This Art. I am your host, Rob Lee, and this is on MTR Podcast. My next guest is a freelance reporter in Baltimore and graduate student studying city and regional planning at Morgan State University. Go Bears. Shout out, shout out. He previously served as an editor for the Baltimore Business Journal and the Daily News website, Baltimore Fishbowl. Most recently, he has written for Bloomberg City Lab, Next City, Baltimore Magazine, and The Outlaw Report. Please welcome Ethan McLeod. Thanks for coming on the podcast.
1: Hey, Rob. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: So, yeah, this is is great. I'm glad we were able to connect because um, it's rare. I like in the many episodes that I've done of this podcast, like I kind of get a nice swath of people who are doing various things within the city, whether it be photographers, whether it be visual artists. But um, I think it's been very limited the amount of uh, reporters and kind of people in that journalistic space that I've spoken to. So um, let's learn more about what you do. Give us those vital stats. Where'd you grow up? How'd you get started? Right. Give, us the, give us a run. How'd you get to Baltimore? Come on, give us a rundown.
1: Right, right. Yeah, it's, I, I tell people all the time. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia, um, very close to Dallas airport out in Yeah, I tell people all the time. I never really thought as a kid, all, even all the way up through high school, um, that I'd be living in Baltimore as an adult, but um, I love it here. Um, yeah, so grew up in Herndon, you know, um, went to college at uh, DC area uh, at American University, um, studied communications there. I was always into writing through high school, but um, yeah, I started studying communications, joined the student newspaper at American, the Eagle, um, represent, um, and uh, yeah, got my feet wet in reporting. Um, took uh, the first reporter job I was offered out of school um after doing a few internships and yeah, I was working in my hometown and I've I'm sure a lot of other reporters and can share a similar story. Um have just I don't want to say bounced around, but um, you know, moved from one thing to the next. Um so got to so I got to Baltimore when I was working in Silver Spring. Um my wife's parents actually retired here and we would come up and um we would visit them. We loved just the vibe we got from the city um getting out and exploring a bit and we said why not try and make the change it's, it's tough to get by in dc doing something you love um so yeah i got a job at fox 45 and um did that for about half a year working the web desk there and then landed at baltimore fishbowl um where i got to help grow the site expand its digital focus um, I don't know if and many of our listeners um, read the fishbowl, but uh, if not, you should check it out. Um, it's a great local locally owned and um, locally focused news source. Um, yeah. And uh, got a chance to freelance at some other outlets while I was there um Baltimore city paper, rest in peace, um, and just connect with others in the city. So basically I've just, you know, deep into my roots here um, through reporting and storytelling um, uh, before my current phase now, I'm, I'm a full-time graduate student, but I spent about uh, a little less than two years working for the Baltimore Business Journal as the associate editor, doing print duties and um, writing daily coverage as needed. Um, and yeah, I've just been spreading my wings a bit um, since I went back to school, um, studied city planning and been freelancing around. It's been fun. It's a bit, um, every week is different. So.
0: We, we yeah. like, we like having different, we like having uh, just things that make, make it seem interesting. You know, like, like I think if you go to whatever your day job may be, whether it is your passion, whether it does have that level of um, interest for you, if it feels like I'm just doing the same thing every day, it gets like a bit, a bit dry, it's stale. But if it's like, it's different every day and it's like uh, different challenges, different problems to solve, different things to absorb, that makes it like interesting, I guess
1: yeah and, I mean the news isn't really they're doing a daily um full time in news. It's never really monotonous, but you know after a while, especially with the weekly paper, things do fall into a routine and um yeah, the last two months for me um since kind of going out on my own while being back at school um literally every day is <laughs> um sorting out something different so.
0: so describe some of those experiences um working between uh you know, like I like I know like fishball, I think there's a few images of myself uh, in an article there from a couple of years back. We'll <laughs> talk about that at a later time. Uh, and the Baltimore Business Journal as a reporter. So being involved in in with those two publications and being um, a reporter and, and kind of being able to see Baltimore from a certain vantage point. Um, how do you see Baltimore? What is your, your take on Baltimore? And obviously someone that has been transplanted here. How, do you, how have you been seeing it?
1: Sure. Um- I mean, think of me getting here in um, 2016, um, how I guess it was so focused on the criminal justice stuff, especially working at a TV station. Um, It takes a few years to gain a sense of the power dynamics. So that's something that I would say is the narrative arc of all the positions I've worked in. By the time I became an editor for the BBJ, and after, say, a year of doing it, you really gain a strong sense of how decisions are made in this town. Um, It's not always you know the textbook uh what what am i trying to say like the you think of campaign donations and that influence decision making it's much more subtle than that it's a very entrenched power structure that we have here um uh and that includes for business interests exerting their influence on city leaders um you know just think of the the weight of a downtown real estate broker talking to a city official about what they view as the most pressing problems and how that might differ from what folks in another side of town who lived here their whole lives would say are the most pressing problems and which of those things um, captures the interests of those making decisions and influencing public policy the most. The cynic in in me would say, you know, it's the, it's the brokers, it's the (laughs) downtown business interests that really do um, get their say out there a bit more. Of course, I think, I have an entirely different question of how the city works um, in terms of capturing um, neighborhood leaders and what they know to be true about how things work. I think we are always hoping um, elected leaders will listen to them more, think of life on the ground a bit more than always the bigger economic picture because for example, um, gun violence is something if you look at it from a higher lens view, um, it seems like this intractable problem. How can you possibly solve it? You just look at it in terms of numbers. That's how a lot of decisions are made. Meanwhile, you have, um, neighborhood and grassroots organizations, and even just community ties informal um, dealing with conflicts on their own. I think safe streets has been a perfect example of how that can really work successfully. Um, so it's a lot of what's under the surface that is driving the success of this city, and that's something that I think I've captured over the years, um, editing and writing here. It's a lot of the behind-the-scenes stories, and those are the ones you really want to dig up, not the uh, low-hanging fruit.
0: Absolutely, um, I, I find myself getting into like conversations on what's happening here, and people seem to focus on the the low-hanging fruit and. You know, it's great to hear that. No, no. What's that next level? What is the next thing? Why? The what if? The so on. Those continued questions like what I do. I'm an analyst. So I continually ask the questions. Why is this happening? Why? You know, what, what does the data say? What You know, like going to a source, let's say that may be a source of truth to try to get down to maybe why? What is this telling us or what have you? And or just using your eyes and seeing, like, where I'm at, um, my, the neighborhood that I'm in, it's considered blighted and all of that different stuff on the surface. But really, it's a move to influence people who are living here to to move out. And that is attached to a large uh, institution here that maybe has an interest and wants to have property for their residents and their students to go to. And that's that's kind of that. And it's like, how is it? You know, so dangerous and so on. Not saying that it's not, but help me understand. Like, how is it dangerous in a place where you're making only really residential property? So you're making p- spaces for people to live in, but then the narrative is it's dangerous. And you know, one of, yeah. one of the things that I've I've encountered that I kind of look down on is like your cities, your your places like like this. In terms of Baltimore, let's be very honest about it. Baltimore is the the thing that draws people into the state. Um, If people aren't going to check out Carroll County, unless they're probably into like lynchings, I don't know, but (laughs) which is terrible. But also it's not got a great reputation. But if you're, you're coming into the state to go to, to Baltimore, but then there's that weird relationship, kind of how Atlanta and Georgia is that Baltimore is outside of Maryland, but unless it's used as a punching bag from the state, unless uh, Hogan wants to take shots and things of that nature, but it's, right. it's really, it's really odd how this is a, it has to be some economic benefit from businesses wanting to do their business in Baltimore and people moving into the city. But also you only hear about the dangers that are happening here, a city under siege and so on specifically like what I hear nightly on Fox 45. Like I, mm-hmm. it, it's a really, it's really a challenging for me to swallow with my analytic brain. Like, hold on, what, how, how is it both?
1: <laughs> yeah. It, um, What you're describing, I remember interviewing um, now Mayor Brandon Scott when he he was running um, when it was, I think we were past primary season, so he had already won the primary. But I remember asking him uh, for um, an interview for the Business Journal about whether he thinks it's about attracting a huge company to town and that's going to be the savior. Remember the HQ2 sweepstakes for Amazon years ago. And whether that is something he views as the most critical thing, or if it's really about fostering existing uh, businesses here, which reminds me of your um, real estate analysis example. Um, And yeah, I remember him candidly saying, you know, it's not going to be some outside corporate savior. It's going to be the businesses that have come up here and have, you know, have their journey already. And that's something that I, I just, genuinely believe about the city that you know our most pressing problems it's going to be the people here who solve them it's not always gonna it, it, it's just very unlikely to me that it's going to be some force from above or outside that's going to bring us the answer and that's that's tough because it's harder it's a harder it's a tougher pill to swallow but um it, you know i think the resources are already here it's about um lining them up
0: yeah, I think lining them up and really doing things in an equitable way—that's um, that, that's something that from that state top-down kind of level we don't see as much, and we've seen at least especially like in the arts community, right, where the funding was really weird at a point, and it's like not being not really hitting those places where it should hit. Like, all right, guys, you might want to take a look at the how is these these funds being allocated, or I, I think the other observation there is the the nature of i think a lot of baltimoreans we're not the most we're we're open but also we seek that um uh, authenticity we seek that integrity and if if we feel like you're coming in and you don't have that integrity whether it be an individual whether it be a business it's hard to be accepted as being a part of it because their places and, and their artists, there are different people who've come here and have lived here for a certain amount of time. And it's like, OK, you've gotten your check. You got your your purple check. It's like a version of of Instagram but for Baltimore. But other people just come in. It's like, I want to be the savior. I want to be the face and so on. And it's like, no, we don't believe you. You need more people. It's like we we need something more from you.
1: And that's something I think about a lot as a transplant. I'm not a born native and there's so much I'm always learning. And yeah, a part of it, I mean, I think my wife and I are here, we, we feel like we're lifers we love it genuinely. but you know, it is about being aware of how am I coming across? Do I, do I think I have the answers or what I'm telling you now is just what I believe to be true. That's a base, yeah. <laughs> But you know? not gonna say uh, as the outsider who came in to report on and write about and learn about the city that I know it's just about who do you know to listen to
0: absolutely um so like kind of maybe stepping back into a little bit more more deep and pointedly what are what are what do you consider the role of the reporter to be and of someone that's like covering a particular scene um, you can speak specifically if you want to talk about the art scene or the scene larger in the city um, but and how is that that role maybe changed in your mind over the last, like maybe three to five years.
1: Oh, well, if we're going to, I'll start with just saying, I think beat reporters have their beats. They, you know, it's not as fun They get to pick and choose every story you want to do. But if you're a a, (laughs) a full-time reporter for the Baltimore sun, you, you have a job that's pre preordained, you know, you have to follow those things as they happen. You do get some discretion for when you want to do features or, you know, elevating things. And so, beyond the necessities of the job, if you work in a daily full-time role, I would say the job of the reporter is otherwise to elevate the good ideas, to elevate, not to, I remember Catherine Pugh going on a rant about how media um, was shaping the narrative in the wrong way. That's a very disingenuous way to look at it. And I remember a lot of us were just sitting and shaking our heads like, is that really what you think? Um, But you know, not in a disingenuous way. We only need to elevate the good ideas, but when you get an opportunity to, <clears throat> you can combat that narrative that, you know, the city's always faltering. Think about it this way. The city was, as you noted, that it wasn't as the economic engine of Maryland, but it didn't always have these very nefarious issues. And so the second those started happening, it always seemed like it's declining from a status quo that people really romanticized, mm-hmm. but it's media's job to remind folks, you know what? There's still some really beautiful, um, Beautiful things, some brilliant vines doing great work here um yeah, so, and then, <clears throat> specific to arts, I would say the demise of city paper a few years ago completely changed how that stuff gets covered. Be more art has done an absolutely wonderful job um plugging some of that. It's only one um uh, it's a quarterly print outlet with a with a website it can't do everything um so I would say that that made. And I'd I'd be curious what you think if someone really looped in with that community, but I would say it made it, every story that would get run on something arts related was at a premium because those, the, the production of of media coverage of of the arts completely dropped off after city paper disappeared. And at this we tried to, you know, I would go to something that is definitely not my expertise. I would go to an opening at AVAM or, go to this gallery and somebody mentioned it to me and I thought it was really cool, but, um, definitely I'm not a trained arts writer. So yeah. that's, if that, I think that speaks to the state of media, of arts media in town. If you got somebody like me covering, you know, city hall and small businesses and, and neighborhood stuff, also going to art openings, it's almost a a point of desperation. Um, I think though, so again, it be more arts of the, of the city and, um, Those with their ear to the ground, Um, Baltimore Beat um, had some really great coverage going while they were up and running. Um, And uh, yeah, we obviously just hope for more of that.
0: Yeah, I I think um, I think it being accessible too. Like um, your 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 assessment around um, city paper is is huge. Uh, That was something that free publication. You get it when I was commuting um, years back, commuting down to DC. That would be something I would take with me. And that DC has their own version of it and it's like, yo, know, can we kind of keep this rocking and rolling? Or even further back, like The Examiner, those other free publications that um you would just find things that are quote unquote on the fringe, aren't the larger, more publicized things. I would find out about, okay, like what bands are coming here to these venues that I like. I would find out about different things that are happening in the scene and it felt accessible where you know i've been covered in the city paper for a few different things and the examiner and so on and when the city paper like went the way of the dodo uh, then the weekend paper or whatever that is just didn't really Uh kind of serve that that same that same audience and do it in the same way that there's a degree of credibility and going back to that thing i was saying about authenticity here who's this new thing? We don't like you. We don't know you, but we don't like you. Whereas at least that's the, 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 the assessment that I've gotten. And whereas it's like, yo, City Papers, like you're coming back, right? That's kind of the vibe I feel like that's, that's sitting there. And um, there definitely is a gap that certain either bloggers and certain publications here are trying to fill. But it's just, it's too large to say you're a segment within a larger publication that's covering all of these different things that are Baltimore related. You can't have like the slither. You need something that's really hitting that, those, those uh, different areas. And I feel like you also kind of get it, some of the news, maybe in these different outlets that are in the scene, like you go to Station North, you may go to a coffee shop or something, and you might see an upcoming event. But it's literally more guerrilla market oriented, um, guerrilla marketing oriented than it being in a publication. And I get it that those things take money, but I'm always very like, hmm, w- w- what's the focus here?
1: One thing that we really noticed at Fishbowl when I was working with Brandon Weigel as my editor there for some time the power of a calendar listing of what that can do. It doesn't have to be a full feature or yeah. um, an essay. It can just be a thoughtful calendar listing, maybe some humorous phrasing or whatever, something that suggests some familiarity with the subject. And that is a very low, that's a high efficiency, low cost thing that media yeah. can do. That, um, that is, that's kind of that gorilla approach you're talking about. Hey, the editor saw this in a coffee shop because they go there because yeah. they know where to look. Yeah, And that's, yeah, that's the value of that.
0: Because I think if you're you're in there, like some people, like, it, like w- when I go to any place, right, whether it be going to a bar, I'm going to the pretentious beer section, like what do they have here? Or if I'm going to a coffee shop while they're making my ridiculous coffee and procuring my roadie boy or whatever I'm getting, right, I tend to go over there to... Where are the business cards at? Where are the little things? Oh, that's a business that does that. Oh, that's interesting. Oh, really? And this w- is kind of supplementing what I was getting from like a city paper, having, and, but knowing where to look and naturally out of interest, I gravitate towards that to even maybe look for potential guests. Oh, I would love to interview them. They do this. They, they, uh, they bring the dead back to life. Hell yeah. Let's do it. Let's, they're interesting. Yeah. So, so in, in your experience, um, how do you know when a story doesn't work?
1: I've had that happen a few times and more than a few times, um, you get an idea in your head, you get started on the, the groundwork for the reporting. And, um, sometimes, you know, you might even I'm just getting a little head here, but you might look in retrospect, you're like, you know what? The story did work. And I just had a preconceived notion of what it was supposed to be. It was supposed to have this many voices that you wanted five or seven and you can only find two people to speak on it. And then you felt like it was insufficient. So uh, anyway, um, but that's, that's more speaking to the regret of when you decided a story didn't work and maybe it did. Um, I guess, you know, because you're trying to, this is something that's been apparent to me a few times. You're trying to write the lead. You're trying to really get into it or yeah. For those listening, the the lead is your, your introduction. Then below that in a good, in a well-rounded story, you often have what's called the nut graph, which is what kind of your scene set you're giving the stakes for what, you know, say well, this side says this and this side says this and contextually data has shown this. So all this is happening in this, and yeah, you're, you're giving the overview right there. And if that isn't readily apparent when you're, when you're starting off and looking through your notes and you just like, I'm not really someone who deals with writer's block often. And I wouldn't even call that writer's block. It's just the idea blocks itself. The idea yeah. crumbles, um, or it's, it's stagnant, um, Yeah. That's, and then I guess it's better to know if a story doesn't work before you've done it than after. And it's been out there and you've really tried to force this thing through and get your point across. Um, you didn't, you you find the reception to It's just awful. Or you hear from somebody that that's the, you know, the thing that makes your stomach drop. You get that email that says, Hey, you know, I've studied this or I know this, my best friend did this thesis on this and you really should have looked, I wish you would have come and asked. And, um, that's every reporter's regret. Right. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's when you really know maybe, maybe something didn't work as planned. Um, but yeah, I think it'll often make itself evident that, you know, this isn't working that great. And it, frankly, it takes a better reporter or writer to know that than to assume everything is going to be an easily fleshed out story. Um, it's supposed to challenge you. Um, and just sometimes you gotta be uh, willing to admit you were wrong about your idea. Maybe it's not coming together the right
0: way. So. You you're studying at Morgan State University. I am an alumni, Uh, you know, throw my name around and people, you know, they throw flowers and peeled grapes and all of this stuff. Just just do it. It'll be a great ride for you. Uh, I heard there's an interesting story of how you got there to Morgan. Um, Tell me more about that. And for those since this is an audio platform, (laughs) describe yourself for, for those who may not be aware.
1: Yeah, I don't know how big of an elephant in the room this is here in the city, but um, yeah, I'm a white dude, and uh, I enrolled as a uh, as a full time student at Morgan State University this past uh, I guess starting this past August. Um, so I'm studying city and regional planning um, at the school. I, it's so uh, it's an HBCU. Um, I, I would say that to what you um, just brought up. Uh, that's a little more noticeable, I think in the undergrad population than among the graduate students, a lot of the programs are, you know, it's a mix of white and Hispanic Asian international. And then of course, like black, like black Marylanders and black um, Americans, just, you know, all in the same program. Um, it is funny, like going to the, the gym there. I do that three days a week. And, um, I've, <laughs> I've had a, a power lifting coach and his session with the students and be like, all right, good job, white boy. I'm there in the corner. I'm like, thank you, sir. <laughs> you know? um, that's about the, and I wouldn't even call that alienating. I would just say it's funny and it reminds you, you know, um, you know, you're, you, you're the odd man out. Anyway, it's been an absolutely wonderful experience so far. um, So I found my way to Morgan State Um, while um, I guess I thought about, I never really thought about um, city planning when I was an undergraduate student um, studying communications and working for the student newspaper. Um, But serving as an editor at the Business Journal um, gave me plenty of experience looking historically at how things have been built and designed in the city. And Baltimore's kind of ground zero for a lot of these things like redlining, you know, um, legally, <laughs> legally permitted segregation. We had that, that pioneering ordinance. It was 1917. Um, so all these things really got me thinking about, I got, I always wanted to go back to grad school. I didn't know if journalism was the right fit or the best um, option for me to go back and study. But, um, I really started thinking about city planning and yeah, so we had two graduate programs here in Maryland. Um, And honestly, I never really figured out if I wanted to go full-time or part-time. And I ended up, um, you know, getting an offer for some financial aid and to work with the school and with the department and help with some research that um, is proving really interesting. So that's how I made this, you know, life transition, you know, seven years as a reporter and editor and decided to just jump in and go right back to school um, while staying active writing and yeah so far it's been great learning you know things like history of city planning using excel for um, population projections and um you know everything from the wonky to the the high level um stuff that's really interesting and good for kind of bar talk things like that i
0: I think i think those two things uh having the background and like like journalism and, and writing and kind of having a specific area um, that your research at those two things just go together. And it's like, oh, yeah, you can now definitely research more rather and, and uncover these different things or present these different things in a journalistic point of view. And it's like, you know, it's really shitty, you, you know, and it, it really, it really touching. Like, yeah. So let's revisit redlining. Let's, let's hit this the Baltimore butterfly or the Baltimore L real quick. Let's talk about that, guys. Yeah, I,
1: I mean, I can offer an example too. Like one of my assignments was to pick a park um, in the city and tie it to the movements we're learning about um, city and urban planning. And I picked Preston Gardens because it's just such an oddball park down there. Um, for those who aren't familiar, it's off St. Paul, right in front of Mercy. You'll see it. It's this linear park that you've probably driven by a bunch. It's got these very ornate staircases and some fountains. And um, I went, you know. I I dove back into the news clippings from the Baltimore Sun and the 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 News American from we're talking 1908 when they start talking about this and how public perceptions of what green space are and you know things like parking um, some of these arguments we're still having today and uh, other things it was celebrated as this beautiful thing of the time and then seeing how City policy has allowed that park to really deteriorate or deteriorate or get sandwiched in between one one way roads and no longer being a park that you really want to go hang out at. That's right. an example of where journalism and this research and this academic book focus really dovetailed. And um, it's been fun so far. I'm only what, 11 weeks in or so, but um, very much enjoying it.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's it's tying things together or what have you. It's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense now. Like, <laughs> like oh, this is happening. This, I see this now. Now I better have a better understanding of it. And it's like, oh, yeah, right. It's like that, that, that thought bubble or that uh, light bulb goes off. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so now I have like two more questions before I get to the rapid fire ones. If um, okay. you could live a completely different life, like maybe profession, maybe area, so on. Which which would you choose? Uh, break it down as far as you want to break it down. Sure,
1: um, I grew up playing basketball, obsessed with basketball. Just it was what I lived and breathed. Thought I, you know, would be uh, that, you know, the childhood dream. You kidding? I'm going to play basketball at University of North Carolina, and then I'll go to the NBA. Um, and uh, yeah, things don't pan out for <laughs> most of us. But um, what I got really into as a kid was reading biographies. Um, I think that was when I started thinking, hey, writing is really interesting it can be beautiful while also being factual um you know this, this some of this non-fiction coverage of people's lives so yeah i if i could revisit things um i probably would have um carved out a an academic focus on history and stuck to basketball thinking of basketball historians thinking of people yeah. who feed the information to the uh, national basketball hall of fame um who I mean, the NBA is celebrating 75 years right now, and it's they're doing all of this, um, all of these callbacks to the greatest players and teams and these moments in NBA history, um, which is like gold. Every time I'm watching uh, now that the season's back on, and, and I'm watching and listening, I'm like, God, if I, if I could only go back and just say, this is what I'm gonna do. This is something I'll I'll just make it happen. Something you, you um, just make happen out of thin air. Yeah. That would be my, I don't know how imaginative that is. That's assuming, you know, I grew up in the same place, did the same things as a kid, but uh, yeah, that's a fun, you know, alternate reality to think about. But my life was all just basketball history, you know.
0: That'd be great. So, um, and, I, and I like how <laughs> I maybe... Maybe this is baseball related, but I think maybe when like Moneyball and all of this stuff was going on, it's like sports started realizing how important our uh, stat nerds are. It's like, oh, yeah, we need data to really like prove these barbershop conversations. And, you know, going back to that, that 75, you know, the 75th anniversary, just like. You know, people are now debating who deserves to be in that top 75 and people are pulling out their analytics. Well, he scored this many points. His PPE was this. It's like, all right, it's, it's fine. His prior 36, though, it's like they play less games in a different competition. It's like this is a very subjective list. Like, it's fine. Um, so the last question I have uh, is if you were stranded on a tropical island, what are two things that you would have to bring with you that you would have to have?
1: I'm going to go for the one that that's going to get me some. Some brownie points here. I'd probably want a picture of my wife or of my family, um, something like that. It, depending on how long I'm going to be stranded there, I want to be looking at those faces that I love so much, and that that um, make me feel home if I'm stuck out, God knows where. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, I I do most of my writing nowadays, almost all of it except for school, on a laptop. But I would I would, going to the most primitive and practical sense, I just want. Uh, maybe let's, let's say not one notebook, but a stack of little reporter notebooks so that I have some, I have some bandwidth, and some, okay. some, uh, some space to fill. And I would just want a chance to, um, to, uh, to write. Obviously this isn't thinking very practical. I'd probably want a knife, right? But no, I uh, <laughs> yeah, <yeah, yeah>, yeah. <laughs> probably want some tools, but no, those are the things that um thinking, uh, Creatively and romantically, those are the things that I would want to have with me.
0: It's like, ah, a little knife, little spear, something to get these fish or whatever they yeah, might be Yeah, maybe something
1: to help me eat i don't know but yeah Yeah. no let's go with the notebooks and the in the
0: picture this is the worst episode of survivor ever it's like i need some matches (laughs) like 36
1: hours (laughs)
0: right it's just like wilson it's like why do you have like why'd you bring this this volleyball with you what are you doing uh so now i want to hit you with the uh, rapid fire questions before we uh wrap up for today and essentially the way that these rapid fire questions work is it's it's an effort to kind of like have a more of an inner peak in inside of you as an individual. Um, and it's just answers. You don't have to provide any extra context. If you don't want to, if you want to, that's always fine as well. Um, so, and if you, so so the first question is, um, what is the best thing about our times like current day? What is the best about what we have going on current day?
1: I would say the level of, um, analysis we're doing on what's culturally relevant. Um, and across racial and economic lines, we're always being reminded to assess why is this, you know, today's story. Um, what have we missed here? I think people are thinking with a more open mind and even everything to like politicians now have PR teams that are requiring them to, Hey, don't make this gas. People are going to remind you of this. It's just um, a better intellectual foundation for, for thinking about um, current events How does this come across in terms of equity, current events, policies? I mean, um, media products, you know, how a newspaper frames something, how a piece of art um, is going to be received, all of these things. and, And it's probably because of the Internet, right? You just have more voices and you have more stimulus for conversation. But it's just a hyper awareness. We've got people protesting critical race theory, which is like, it's such a little meta thing because critical race theory in many places, but it, it was, it didn't even exist as an idea. It was just, are you teaching things, um, according to the correct timeline of history or not? Now we've got the, yeah. again, this kind of meta warfare about critical race theory, but is just putting a label on something that should have been being taught anyway. So that's what I'm saying is actually a good thing. If people are required to think a little deeper.
0: And even the, the, the terminology, it just automatically sounds like, like negative. It's like, look, are you just teaching history? Like, are you just teaching like accurate history? Well, uh, about that, <laughs> it's, it's like what? Maybe, maybe what? Uh, last year, um, we were covering on one of my other podcasts about um, pop culture and how uh, certain entities were being dragged for having like really weird stuff like some stuff that was old, some stuff that was newer case of point. I was like, huh, Jimmy Kimmel was doing blackface at one point, like as Car Malone. And we didn't really talk about that. Or the golden girls had this weird kind of homophobic thing in an episode or 30 rock. And I was like, oh, 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 do we need to keep that stuff in there? Do we need to add a disclaimer or do we remove it? I was like, I want you all to look messy. I want you all to show that you didn't have a person in the room that may have said, this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And some of it is varying timelines. Some of it is five years old. Some of it is ten years old. Some is thirty years old. But when you start removing it, then it's just like, oh, I didn't know they did that. Well, I I remember it. I'm 36. I remember these things. Like, what what are you saying? And it it is this sanitizing kind of thing, and it removes history, and it makes me think. And maybe it's just slippery slope. But I just think like. It almost gives people license to say, "Well, this is the reality." Right. Until it's done. yeah, I don't. So you can pull up someone's tweets from ten years ago to kind of take a shot at their character if they're doing something. Like I remember uh, uh, Chrissy Teigen or what have you. She was talking about uh, that 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 girl and that Courtney Stodden girl, and it was yeah. And it's like, why are you saying? And I was like, I remember when this was. Set, I was like, this isn't cool at all. And then it, it we we recently surfaced this it's just like, no, it's, this was a thing. It, it sucked then. It still sucks. Like, why are we bringing right. this up? Because it's new. It always sucked. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, next
1: question. But we're asking those questions. And that's, yeah. you know, it's, it's a constant yeah. way of thinking.
0: Uh, worst thing about our times currently, uh, what do you think is on the uh, other side of that coin?
1: Right. I think once we've had those conversations, we get very complacent. We say, what? We already addressed it. What we had a defund the police movement last year. Meanwhile, cities are reversing these these cuts to police budgets. Things that progress to folks care about. Yeah. It's it's saying that the conversation was enough. Um, that the symbolic, you know, mm-hmm. changing what was it Uncle Ben's changed their logo and <laughs> and kept Uncle Ben. Uncle Ben's and yeah. Chimambo. And they kept yeah, yeah, Uncle yeah. Ben. And it, anyway, it's just. Um, we think that that's enough and it doesn't So yeah, I guess it's the other side of the coin. As you said, what I, what is one of the best things is also the worst thing. We get very complacent. We have very short attention span, but maybe that's just what I should say The short attention span, um, that we all seem to have, um, and so much information coming at us. I think the, the Gen Zers will be really good at, at processing this stuff, maybe better than we, we can. They'll be like, their brands will be like more advanced computers when they're, our age, which is me aging myself, by the way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, they'll just, oh, no. they'll just, they'll, maybe they'll be better at having better attention spans and focusing on multiple things at once. Because I think we forget very easily.
0: Yes. And I, I think there's also an element of, of sneak dissing that goes on there too. Like, you know, as you put it, we were talking last year about defund the police. Now we're trying to rebrand it. Yeah. Let's refund the police. Let's put like 28 million there. It's like, shut up like, like, or you have states like like florida you know kind of pushing along this notion of oh well feel free to come down if you haven't been vaccinated if you're unable to go to work and you can police here it's like this is not wise at all actually it's a little
1: dystopian it's it's how how the like when the attention span wears off when the focus wears off it's now this really like shocking dystopian reality that you might have you know, might've been a little tangent than Huxley when you read it in high school. And now it's like literally playing out in front of us. So,
0: yeah. it, it feels almost like when you're watching someone that's like a celebrity in a, in a, in a pop in a movie or a TV show. And it's like, look, um, you're, you're polling down like public, like public relations style. It's Like if you can just get past this first week, <laughs> just, then we can go back to all the bullshit we were doing beating up Negroes, like hotcakes or whatever it might be. Uh, Okay. Um, since you mentioned this, I took one of the questions out and I replaced it. Since you mentioned this, I didn't know this detail about you. So I had to ask favorite NBA player.
1: Oh, um, Larry, Larry bird. Um, he, he ran himself into the ground, just which is like a a really work ethic thing that I'm, I'm, um, sadly very about, (laughs) Uh, you know, the absolute, the absolute teammate martyr, um, uh larry um really putting himself out there there's I, I also have a i i sprained my back last year and weirdly felt very connected to larry after uh after that happened and you know building my strength <laughs> back up this is my little mini heroes uh, <laughs> playing basketball and getting back in shape but every time i watch old <laughs> clips of larry bird i'm just thinking about how grueling and how how grueling that was, and how much he loved um, what he was doing, and how dedicated he was. So,
0: I, I I like like I just remember like I I saw some some Larry um, towards the the back end of his career, and it was always kind of that thing of like who's the, the the dope white boy what have you I was like no Larry, Larry Bird is just Larry Bird it wasn't yes, one of those Larry things Bird. oh he's just yeah and yes. I just remember that that interview they had with him um, I think with like LeBron and Carmelo and maybe Dwayne where first just got in the league and he's like yeah when I was playing that's like I kind of want like the good guys after me I don't want like a white dude guarding me and I was like oh shit and I was just like, wow, I was like, Larry, <laughs> Larry from the three. <laughs> yeah. You know, he, I think, so like, you know, points
1: yeah, he. you know, the way he played, it transcended race too. It's just, it, it and that's a, you know, I had friends nickname me, Larry, when I would play with them because I was just the dude playing a bunch of other black dudes. So that name, Good. you know, that image, but really it goes much beyond race. Just looking back at how he played, it's, it's unbelievable. Absolutely. Yeah. Legendary.
0: When I when I think of the three point shot, I immediately think of Larry Bird. That's yeah. just what it is, what have you, for me. And also one of the better nicknames, uh, like forever, like you have like names that are just like I think if it's a name that kind of like rhymes, like or it rolls uh, off like Larry Bird, Larry Legend, yeah, like Larry Bird, <laughs> yeah, Larry Legend or the uh, the Hick from French Lick. Uh-oh. That is a fire nickname. Oh, yes. it, it's in that same class of the uh, round mound of rebound. Mm-hmm. Those are fire nicknames, like uh, like the Charles Barkley's nickname. Those are fire nicknames. Yeah. Um, favorite font. Um,
1: I, this is so lame, but um, I'm of the AIM generation, and you could change it. Is it Trebuchet? Trebuchet. Is that how that's said? Trebuchet. MS? And.
0: You see, you see the look of my face yeah. right here? It's just like oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's just it right. was I was like, Oh, this is cool I'm among or this is what my cool friend, this is how he types. So weirdly, yeah, that's 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 my font.
0: <laughs> okay. I thought you were gonna be an Ario person or you like, um, Times New Roman, uh It's such the default, you yeah. know, okay.
1: Trebuchet MS, if I'm saying that right, is how you know, that's an expressive font to me, which is hilarious because it's so boring. Um, but yeah, that—that's your expressive alternative.
0: See, now that question could have been really weird. Like, describe yourself as a font. And that's a whole different oh situation.
1: God. Yeah, I would just say wingdings and not explain.
0: Yeah. Yeah, wingdings, no context. <laughs> Next question. Uh, last, last question here. Um, uh, social media or social media DMs or email? As in the best way to get in touch what is your preferred way of having someone like kind of get through the fodder and get like directly to you? What is that most preferred way?
1: Yeah, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm active enough on Twitter. So that could be, they reply to me or, or they DM me. Um, yeah, Twitter's a and Twitter is a chance. You know, I, I put up a photo of my cat there this morning and then tweeted out a, a clip for the outlaw report that I had written. So it it mixes the fun and the work. And so that's a good place to, to keep it real. I think I like to think. Twitter's also ridiculous, but yeah, that's, that's my favorite way to get in touch.
0: I've, I've learned of uh, different subsets of colorist, black Twitter. It's like, Oh, there's light skin Twitter. I was like, what is light skin Twitter? I was like, I've heard of black Twitter. I was like, I need to do a deeper dive into (laughs) the Twitter nonsense because I feel like I'm missing a whole branch of comedy. Oh
1: man. Yeah. Isn't the comedy on Twitter? So good. Yeah. It's, the the comedy on there is great, but obviously it's also an extremely chaotic place that that can be just you know terrible.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's all that I had, so I want to open up the uh, floor for you to um, share, promote anything, social media, anything that you have coming up, um, and, and thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, as for you know keeping up, um, I'm a regular freelancer for, um, these days it's for Baltimore magazine. So I've um, been having a piece for them about once a month. Um, just using the, using it to, I've been writing about things like infrastructure and road design stuff. That's not necessarily regularly in your, your monthly glossy. So it's a fun place to put that stuff out there and tell some stories along the way. Um, if you care about cannabis news, uh, please follow the outlaw report. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's a trope, you know, but it, it's something that's being taken more seriously because soon it's going to be just like your uh, or maybe if you already live in somewhere like Colorado or uh, Washington or California, it already is like your neighborhood liquor store. It's just there. And it's a huge changing field. Um, yeah. And uh, I'm at Ethan F. McLeod on uh, on Twitter. And um,
0: yeah, please engage. Hit me up. Today you have it, folks. Um, I'm Rob Lee for Ethan F. McLeod saying that there's art in and around Baltimore. You just have to look for it.